Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 607 for the 26th of August, 2018. This week, if you use a computer or other mobile device with any connection other than your own private network, virtual private network software is essential. A VPN can be helpful on your private network too, but it can be troublesome. In short circuits, two free applications exist to help users sort out what starts when Windows boots up. Malware sometimes has auto start components, but the most common use for these applications is to speed the boot process and remove needless apps. Apple's sales are off this year. The company is probably hoping for a boost from the new MacBook Air and Mac Mini models that will be shipping in October. In spare parts, only on the website, disinformation is increasingly a problem for online services, and Facebook this week took down more than 600 phony sites being operated from Russia and Iran. It's beginning to look a lot like 2000, and I keep wondering if another dot-com crash like the one in 2002 is in our future. Pre-orders for the Samsung Galaxy Note 9 that I mentioned last week seem to be skewing toward the higher-priced model. VPN, Virtual Private Network. It's a way to keep communications between your computer and Internet services private, but you may be wondering if it's necessary and how many problems a VPN might cause. Is it necessary? Absolutely, in some cases, but not all. Are there problems? Yes, and they vary from one VPN to another. A survey by PCMag found that 71% of their 1,000 respondents had never used a VPN. And even among net neutrality supporters who are a bit more cognizant of the problems, 55% had never used a VPN. So do you need one? Let's start with a little background. When you connect to a site such as TechBiter Worldwide, you don't need a VPN in the middle because no username or password is needed to access the site, and the site collects no information from visitors. So clear text is just fine. A VPN encrypts the connection, and an encrypted connection is essential when you're dealing with your bank, with online services that require validation, and with services like Facebook. These generally have built-in encryption anyway. Visit your bank and you'll see the protocol is HTTPS. The same is true for most sites today. You can even use HTTPS to connect to TechBiter, but you will see a warning that some parts of the site are not secure and not all of the site's features will work. Eventually, I do plan to migrate all of the current pages over to HTTPS, but it's a long-term project that will require a lot of work without providing any real benefit for anyone. For email, you'll want to connect to POP3 or IMAP inbound services and the SMTP outbound service using the Secure Sockets layer, SSL, and Transport Layer Security, or TLS. 
These will be on unusual ports. Unencrypted POP3 connections are on port 110. The encrypted connections often use port 995. Unencrypted IMAP connections are on port 143. Encrypted connections are usually on port 993. SMTP, the outbound service, is usually on port 25. You'll find encrypted connections on 26, 465, 587, and depending on the service, possibly some other port. If you use Google Mail, connections are encrypted by default. So as long as you trust the device that connects you to the Internet, a VPN isn't necessary most of the time. This applies to home connections where the computer is connected directly to the cable modem, hardwired to the router, or connected to the router's Wi-Fi port using a secure connection. Where a VPN is essential is in any location where you're connected via a public Wi-Fi hotspot. This is true for open connections, such as you might find in coffee shops, as well as for public Wi-Fi connections that some businesses provide for visitors, even if you're required to have login credentials. A VPN protects you by being the first service that an outbound request connects to. The connection is encrypted at that point so that no one can see what you're sending or receiving, and all of your Internet activity then flows through the VPN. If you visit a non-secure site, everything between your computer and the VPN's exit server is encrypted and the VPN takes care of making the connection to the site that you want to visit. Now, there is one situation in which a VPN might be useful at home. The FCC's ill-advised elimination of net neutrality means that your ISP can slow traffic from sites that aren't paying the ISP for faster service, or that the ISP can even block sites that management doesn't like. Normally, the ISP can see everything. So if the ISP slows or blocks sites, a VPN can help by hiding your connection requests from the ISP. The service provider can see that your computer is sending and receiving data, but not the source or the destination of the data. A VPN can also disguise your location. Let's say you're in the United States and you'd like to listen to some streaming audio that's limited to computers in the United Kingdom. You can tell the VPN to set its exit point in London. The streaming service will then be available to you. Netflix, however, sometimes refuses to stream data via a VPN. Some VPN providers claim to have settings that fix that problem. For home-based computers, though, as long as the router is secured and the Wi-Fi uses at least WPA2 security, there's little to be gained by using a VPN, and there are some drawbacks. The primary disadvantage VPNs have is their effect on Internet speed. I ran two tests recently, one right after the other. With the VPN disconnected, the downlink speed was 65 megabits per second. That dropped to a little under 45 megabits per second with the VPN, and that is a significant performance hit. The other potential disadvantage is the amount of time required to get some VPNs set up properly. I recently tried PureVPN because it had received many good reviews, but somebody may have gamed the system because I was never able to get it set up properly on a Windows machine, an iOS device, or two Android devices. Tier 1 technicians at PureVPN couldn't resolve the problem. They wanted me to speak with second-tier technicians between 
3 a.m. and 7 a.m. Fortunately, the company does have a 31-day money-back guarantee, which I used. Some VPNs are relatively easy to set up, so be sure to take that into account when you select one. The key point here is that you'll need a VPN at home, maybe, sometimes. But the VPN is essential for any mobile device that might be used to connect to a Wi-Fi device not located in your home. In searching for a VPN, make sure to select one that has versions for all of your devices. In my case, that means Windows, Mac OS, iOS, and Android. Also, most VPN services allow more than one device to connect simultaneously on a single license. The one I use allows five concurrent connections, and I consider that far more than adequate. There are free VPNs and paid VPNs. In general, the paid services are better because some of the free services inject advertisements. The two rules to keep in mind here are, first, you get what you pay for, and second, if you're not paying in money, you're paying some other way. Public Wi-Fi networks are found just about everywhere. Restaurants, shopping malls, libraries, lots of other places. Where I live, there's even an open Wi-Fi signal provided on some streets. Criminals know that these are everywhere and that they're convenient. So they've found ways to use them to our disadvantage. Someone sitting in a restaurant can easily create a Wi-Fi hotspot that mimics the restaurant's public service. Those who accidentally connect to the rogue Wi-Fi will see nothing different because it'll pass the connection on to the real Wi-Fi hotspot after recording any credentials in the data stream. A VPN eliminates that hazard. A VPN will also hide your IP address, but it doesn't make you anonymous. If that is important to you, access the Tor network. Tor will slow your connection even more than a slow VPN because it routes traffic through many volunteer nodes. Tor also provides access to the so-called dark web. So if you're thinking about installing VPN software, there are dozens of them. I'll tell you about a couple that I can recommend and one that, although it gets good reviews, that I can't. NordVPN has more than 3,000 servers around the world and has versions for Windows, Mac OS, iOS, and Android. It's a little more expensive than most of the paid services, but not by much. The Private Internet Access VPN doesn't have quite as many servers as Nord, but it has a lot, and they are distributed around the globe. It's easier to set up than some competitors, and it offers support for most online streaming services. There is no free version, and the money-back guarantee period lasts only one week. And then there's PureVPN. I wanted to like this one, but I really can't recommend it, despite many glowing reviews. I found it hopelessly complex to set up, and the support staff tended to recommend doing things that I'd already done. I was never able to send mail when the VPN was active. And there is a trust issue with a VPN. Bear in mind that all of your internet traffic will flow through the VPN when you're using the service. Most of the services claim not to log any usage or to retain any data, but some of those claims have been found to be not exactly true. The services I've listed, even the one that I can't recommend, do seem to take privacy very seriously. Every VPN should have a privacy policy, and you should read that privacy policy to understand what information the company collects 
if it collects anything, and how it protects that information. So the bottom line here is that VPNs protect, but not absolutely. Although a VPN can encrypt communications, it does nothing to protect users from a social engineering attack. If somebody tricks you into downloading malware, or if you give a crook your credentials in a phishing attack, the VPN isn't going to do anything to help. It does protect against having credentials or data collected as they're being sent over the air in plain text, and it can shield your identity from advertisers. But don't expect magic, because there isn't any. In short circuits, when Windows starts, it examines several locations to determine what additional applications and services should also be started. Sometimes malware is designed to auto-start, but the primary reason for reviewing what starts with Windows is to eliminate needless applications that consume system resources and slow the startup process. Two applications are good choices for the investigation, Startup Delayer and Microsoft's Auto Runs. The Windows 10 Task Manager also has limited capabilities here, but we'll look only at the additional applications, starting with Auto Runs, which comes from Microsoft's SysInternals division. SysInternals was a separate company until Microsoft convinced Mark Rusinovich to join the company. Auto Runs is more comprehensive than Startup Delayer, which means that it's harder to use, and Startup Delayer does include some features that Auto Runs doesn't have. To obtain Auto Runs, download it from Microsoft's website or from the Older Geeks website. There's a link to Older Geeks on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The file you download is a zip that contains several other files, graphical versions for 32 and 64-bit systems, as well as command line versions for 32-bit and 64-bit systems. The application does not have to be installed. Just unpack it and run it. You'll primarily want to look at the Logon tab with Hide Empty Locations and Hide Microsoft Entries selected. Hide Windows Entries is selected by default. This will examine the registry's various locations for Run and Run Once, as well as the Start Menus, Startup Locations for the current user and all users. Other tabs examine other areas that might be of interest to advanced users. There are several ways to get more information about an auto-run location or entry. To view a location or entry in Explorer or RegEdit, choose Jump To in the Entry menu, or double-click on the Entry or Locations line in the display. You can view the Explorer's File Properties dialog for an entry's image file by choosing Properties in the Entry menu. You can also have auto-runs automatically execute an internet search in your browser by selecting Search Online in the entry menu. And as you're looking, you may see something that you don't recognize. Well, keep this in mind. It's important not to turn off or delete a startup application unless you're certain about why you want to remove it. If you find something suspicious, use the options to obtain additional information and then perform a search using DuckDuckGo or Google to see what else you can learn. Be cautious with results from those searches, though, because not all of the information you'll find is honest, and actually some of it can be dangerous. The other application we want to take a look at is Startup Delayer, 
It's available from the R2 Studios website or from Older Geeks. I have a link to the Older Geeks website for you on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I recommend Older Geeks because the applications are kept up to date and are never bundled with crapware. Startup Delayer examines the same locations as Auto Runs to find applications that start with Windows. But to find out what is starting the application, registry or start menu, you have to look in the location column. The primary advantage Startup Delayer offers is its ability to, as you've probably figured out already from the name, delay applications at startup time. Delays can be based on some period from startup, hours, minutes, and seconds, or they can be automatic based on the amount of CPU or disk resources available at the time, or they can be set to standard so that they'll start whenever Windows wants them to start. Both of these applications can start and stop running applications. Both have the ability to examine and control running services. Take care with services, though, because shutting down or turning off an essential service can create some pretty serious problems. To a report by Bloomberg, Apple is preparing an update for its lowest-cost MacBook Air and also for the Mac Mini. They'll be released in October. The Mac Mini is the little box-like computer, starts at $500, but keep in mind that model has only a 1.4 GHz dual-core i5 processor, 4 GB of RAM, and a 500 GB hard drive. For $700, you get a more usable 2.6 GHz dual-core i5 processor, 8 GB of RAM, 1 TB hard drive, and improved graphics. And a model at $1,000 adds still faster processing and faster hard drive. You can boost the CPU and add more memory. Figure on adding another $300 to $400 to that $500 or $700 or $1,000 machine. For a faster hard drive or a solid-state drive, you're going to kick in another two to $600, and you'll probably want to get a mouse, 80 bucks to 130 bucks from Apple, and maybe a keyboard for $100. Computers are much more useful if you have a keyboard. Oh, and you'll probably need a monitor or two. So your $500 computer can easily quadruple in price as you add components. Apple usually releases new computers in October, and it's been several years since the Mini got any upgrades. It has been popular because of its lower starting price. The Bloomberg article says that the upgrades to the Mini will favor pro users and will probably be more expensive than the earlier versions. Bloomberg says the new MacBook will be similar to the current MacBook Air, but will have a Retina screen. Currently, the low-end MacBook is the only computer Apple sells that doesn't have a Retina screen. The current model sells for $1,000. Bloomberg says the new MacBook Air will be geared toward consumers looking for a cheaper Apple computer, but also schools that often buy laptops in bulk. The article notes that Mac sales in the past quarter were at their lowest point since 2010, and that Apple, after being an early leader in the education market, has been losing market share to Windows-based computers and particularly the much lower-priced Chromebooks. Chromebooks have captured more than half of the education market. 
Bloomberg also notes that the upcoming launch of the macOS Mojave version adds new features for sorting files and the ability to run iPad apps like Apple News on a computer. You can read the full report on the Bloomberg website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And while you're there, check out Spare Parts. That's the only place you'll find it. This week, disinformation is increasingly a problem for online services. And Facebook this week took down more than 600 phony sites being operated from Russia and Iran. It's beginning to look a lot like 2000, and I keep wondering if another dot-com crash like the one in 2002 is in our future. And pre-orders for the Samsung Galaxy Note 9 that I mentioned last week seem to be skewing toward the higher-priced model. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.